0: Thank you for joining us for part two of our conversation with Peter Wright, an attorney specializing in special education law and the founder with his wife of Wrights Law. I'm Laura Axtell, one of the hosts of Podcast, and on the last episode, part one, Mr. Wright provided a great deal of information for educators and parents about legal implications related to reading instruction and dyslexia, as well as court cases relating to special education. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that episode, I would highly recommend it. This episode will continue our discussion and we'll follow up on a number of issues that are timely, given the challenges with educating students during COVID. We're going to pick up where we left off on our discussion. Podcast is sponsored by Reading Horizons, a foundational reading program based on the science of reading, that can be delivered in person, virtually, and in a blended learning model with instructional software. Visit www.readinghorizons.com to learn more. Welcome back, Mr. Wright. On the last episode, our conversation ended with you talking about the difficulties that are likely to occur and potential lawsuits arising from the remote and limited instruction that's going to be happening due to COVID-19. So can you tell us what about the inability of schools to meet the needs of students who are supposed to be receiving services on an IEP during this time when there are so many educational challenges?
1: I'm thinking that one way that you might have to characterize this is that compensatory education is to make up for the services the kid did not get, even though it wasn't not necessarily the fault of the school district, because the school district, much like the kid, is a victim. We are all a victim of circumstance. And so you blame that word circumstance, that nebulous entity after there called circumstance as being the villain, the bad guy. Circumstance caused the school to have to cut back on services. Circumstance called the kid to regress now three years in um, reading skills or uh, speech language or behavior issues. So the big question's gonna be, that's not answered yet in case law, the big question going to be is, is there entitlement to compensatory education if there was no fault misconduct dropping in the ball by the school district? And it seems that the mindset is yes, because you look at what uh, Betsy DeVos, the statement that they issued about how schools are going to have to prepare, be thinking through how to, to prepare compensatory educational services for kids. So she kind of opened the door on that without regard to fault on the school district. You can almost use that language to open the door. And then the other thing I'm, I'm saying is you, you want to spin it as not just a compensatory ed case, but almost like an ESY, extended school year case, that, that the kid has had regression, has lost skills, and it's going to take uh, X amount of work to recoup those skills. So almost kind of as an e, a quasi-ESY case also. It's got a mixture without necessarily pointing the finger at a school district as being the villain, as being the bad guy. Because in many instances, you know, they're not. They're overwhelmed, too. And uh, there, there's uh, some school districts that, that um, are just totally overwhelmed by all this. And uh, at the same time, the socioeconomic nature of that area, and that's another issue. And then, of course, you have the, the issue of, of when things start back up and parents having to be home, where the kid goes online and yet the parents got to be at work. To make income, you know, to to make, so I don't know. There's going to be an awful lot of issues out there, and it's going to be a very muddied uh, waters for a long time. I think we have 10 years, 10, 15 years of inconsistent, conflicting litigation. So the party, the the the, the lawyer that presents the easiest story to understand with facts that are compelling, that that, that are a narrative that hits you in the gut is the one that's going to end up prevailing in the end by making it a clean, simple uh, case for a judge to rule in their favor.
0: So the whole lack of equity issue um, has certainly come up. Is money ever a defense? What about when a reading specialist moves to a different district or the speech and language pathologist is out on maternity leave and schools don't have money to hire another one? School budgets may be getting cut, or they're having to spend a lot of money now on things like technology. Is money ever a defense for not providing FAPE, free appropriate public education?
1: Basically, no. Um, The law came into being in 1975 because the uh, tremendous number of school districts around the country took a position that that they could not afford to educate kids with with disabilities with special needs, whether it was to put uh, ramps in or elevators in or provide intense remediation, that they couldn't afford to do that. And if the the school psychologist said that a child was uneducable as defined by the kid's IQ score, then the school had no responsibility to educate a child. And that was what D.C. was uh, saying to my parents. And the kid was suspended or expelled. Uh, That was the the Park, Pennsylvania Association for Inventory Citizens case, and then also there's another case out of D.C., Mills versus D.C., and D.C. Public Schools told its sister agency, told told the D.C. Junior Village, where kids who were in in foster care or custodial uh, services, that uh, D.C. Public Schools told them that they had to educate the children. The D.C. Public Schools couldn't afford to educate them. And so uh, Judge Wadi in the Mills case said that is no defense. The, 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 taking a position that you cannot afford to educate the children is not a defense, and you absolutely have to. And what is interesting, if, if you take a look at almost all of the cases before the U.S. Supreme Court with regard to IDEA or with regard to the special ed statute, special ed law, you know, for example, my, my case, my Carter case, the schools will typically file a brief saying something such as, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of the parents, it is going to bankrupt schools nationwide. It's going to have an incredible adverse economic event, uh, impact on schools uh, around the country. And that's typically the position that is taken. And the courts typically say, if you did what you were supposed to do and provide the kid with appropriate education, this case wouldn't have been brought and it would, would have cost you a lot less money. And that's no defense. Now, there's an issue of reasonableness. So if a parent goes off and, and goes for Cadillac residential program, a very, very high dollar program, and there is a less costly, reasonable alternative out there, then the parent's not going to prevail on getting the Cadillac versus the, uh, the Ford or the Chevrolet.
0: You mentioned that you'd seen particular private schools step up and some schools really taking steps to provide appropriate services to students. If you were advising school districts now from a legal perspective about what they could do during the current circumstances, what could and should they be doing to, first of all, ensure that students are getting services, but second, to avoid having these lawsuits, uh, what would you need to see from them that would prevent a lot of this?
1: Uh, I think the single most important variable is going to be communication and relationship with the parents for the parents to feel that they are being heard and for the, and for the school to listen and actually hear the parents, developing a, a, a decent, good quality dialogue rather than drawing a line in the sand and say, this is the way it's gonna be, this is what you have to do. And, and I've, uh, I've had some instances reported to me where parents were told that for your child to come back to school and not be online next semester, that will be fine so long as you sign this waiver that absolves us of any responsibility, any liability for X, Y, and Z. Wait a minute. <laughs> no, 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 you don't sign a, a waiver absolving them of any responsibility for anything. And uh, I would tell if I was talking with school officials, you've got to develop some good quality communication and uh, uh, understanding of their position and what can be done and how to and f- find creative ways to figure out how to get services to the kid. And and what does the kid need? And there are entities out there that are doing uh, related services and therapy online. So it's out there. And and of course, there have been online charter schools since long before COVID. Not a whole lot, but they've been out there. There have been online charter schools who have had kids with special needs uh, in attendance, in enrollment. So then I would tell my uh, school staff, and I would do this myself if I was a school board attorney. Also, I I would want to find out What's happening with those other schools that are reporting success and, and eyeball see exactly how they're doing this, how they're doing that, and see what can be replicated by uh, my own school districts. Absolutely. And so find out what's successful, what's working elsewhere. And then also, uh, other countries are having some success now with returning back to school. I, I was reading something a few days ago an article about four different countries and what they were doing and, and compared. Uh, each one, and the one that stood out was Uruguay. I, I don't remember totally exactly why. I think it had to do with with split ca- classes, like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for some kids, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday for other kids, and and uh, uh, things of that sort. We're, the, the distancing and, and not and quite different from what we saw with that 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 high school down in Atlanta, uh, down in Georgia. <laughs> you know, where, where the, you know, the hallways were just totally crowded, not like that at all.
0: So. As we're talking about particularly reading instruction, for example, um, Arkansas passed the Right to Read Act that requires teachers in kindergarten to sixth grade to have training that demonstrates knowledge and proficiency in the science of reading. Is that a piece of this as well, that schools have to ensure that their teachers are given that knowledge base uh, and that they're using tools that are based on the science of reading as opposed to what's been happening in the last couple of decades? Uh,
1: very definitely, they, they are. And uh, th- this whole COVID issue and this in- incredible focus on online uh, and the buildup of technology. I mean, you look at Zoom versus Skype two years ago, okay? You know, and, and, and what's happened is so, this is a great opportunity for, for those individuals that you're referring to who, who need to enhance their skills to do it. So much of this can be done online. Uh, and so here, here's a good op- opportunity to, to get the skills up and, and take online courses and this and on that. And, and, that. and, and I'm, I, I get all kinds of advertisements all the time for uh, this uh, webinar or that training, this program, that program that are you know, related to education.
0: And sometimes they're available to any teacher in that particular state because states are starting to realize how essential that is as well. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. And a lot of things are free, so. And I'm really,
1: sometimes, I, you know, I will go and I'll sign up for a webinar. It's totally unrelated to what I do, but it's really interesting to see, what, you know, what's being said and how it's being done. And uh, some of the stuff is just fascinating.
0: Uh, you're saying then that this really is or could be an opportunity for schools and districts if they take advantage of that.
1: Oh, very much so. Absolutely.
0: We're gonna take a quick break, and we'll be back for more of our conversation with Peter Wright. Podcast is brought to you by Reading Horizons, a structured literacy program for beginning readers, struggling readers, and English language learners of all ages. Combining professional development with teacher-led instruction and data-driven software allows students to receive targeted reading instruction that leads to improved reading outcomes. A success story about Reading Horizons comes from Cary in Pennsylvania. She writes, students' excitement to read has gone through the roof. This is their preferred activity for online learning, and it was a seamless transition to implement after the closure of brick-and-mortar school buildings. We are thrilled to have access to the Reading Horizons Discovery Program. For more information, visit ReadingHorizons.com. Now let's return to our conversation with Peter Wright. Let me ask you one thing about parents. You have done so much work over the years with your website, your books and training for parents that really focuses on what they should know in order to work with their school district to get services for their child. Um, And because your parents were so supportive and made sure that you had the right education, you weren't an educational casualty. But a lot of parents don't know anything about the educational system or the process. They just want their child to have the support they need. Would you recommend that they start with your book, From Emotions to Advocacy, as a way of getting an understanding of the process that, to them, can seem overwhelming or adversarial?
1: It is overwhelming, and parents so often feel like they are alone and that they're really not others that have been through or are going through, and they feel so isolated and in a world without COVID, when a parent contacts me and um, uh, I see that they they live in XYZ City and I have a program, a training program coming up, you know, uh, an, an hour or two from where they are in, in a month or two from now, I tell them, well, the, the best thing you can do is sign up for that program. It's a six-hour training program. And in and, and all of my training programs, when I do my live training programs, every attendee gets a copy of our law book. Are from Emotions to Advocacy book and are all about IEPs book. And uh, and I use all three books in the course of the, the training so that the parent later on, they didn't just sit in a six-hour day-long training. They have resources in their hands now where when a question comes up about ESY or i.e. independent educational evaluation, they can look it up in the law book. They've got the information right there. And when someone tells them, well, the law says this and the law says that, well, they know how to find out exactly what the law says, both in the federal statute and then how to go and and look up the state regulations. I I do that in my training. And then how to write a letter. One of the things that I always say, if it's not in writing, it wasn't said. Parents will tell tell me, well, you know, they told me that because the teacher went out the therapist, the speech language therapist, is out on maternity leave. We're not required to make up the time, but we will go ahead and ensure that it kicks back in when when school resumes in the fall. And when a parent says that to me, I say, oh, they told you that they didn't have to make it up. Oh, yes, they did. They did. Uh, so I'm just looking forward. I can't wait for fall to start. And I thought, well, wait a minute now. They told you, but did they put it in writing? Uh, and a parent will say, well, no, no, they didn't. But that's, I mean, that's my understanding. Uh, that's what the law says. And I say, it's not what the law says. And, I, and you know what? Uh, if it's not in writing, it was never said. What do you mean? If it's not in writing, it was never said. I tell parents, if it's not in, in writing, it wasn't said. So you have to write a thank you letter to them clarifying your understanding of what they said. And that if you're mistaken or misheard, for them to let you know. Because you put that in writing, clarifying this is what you were told. You're surprised how fast uh, there'll be a reply back. Oh, I'm sorry, we 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 misled you. No, we're going to go ahead, and and we have someone uh, coming in. We're contracting with who's going to be picking up the ball uh, starting next week. <laughs> so, uh, so parents have to put it in writing. If it's not in writing, so. The keys being uh, uh, if a parent can't go attend one of my live programs, I tell them you need to get our From Emotions to Advocacy book and you need to read it three times. Now, why do I say three times? Because I've had so many parents who told me when they read the book and they started going through it the first time, they got so distracted because there were so many scenarios deja vu where they relived experiences that they had with the school district and they found themselves overwhelmed with emotions and, and the tears rolling down their cheeks as they were reading and they just found themselves getting really uh, distracted and uh, that it was an emotional roller rollercoaster the first read. And, and I heard that several times over a span of about a year so I, I kept on hearing that same story from different parents different locations and and I shifted I told parents when you need to read it three times but the first time you read it skim just skim through the entire book don't read it slow and in depth just skim through it and then your second time take your yellow highlighter read it slower read it carefully write notes to yourself in the margin and then the third time skim it again because when you do it that way by the the, the, the emotional roller coaster kicks in when you start skimming the first time and you get through it a lot quicker that way. And then you can go back and read it, uh, slower in more depth and it makes more sense. And then when you go back and skim through it the third time, uh, that kind of seats it into the brain so that when something pops up three months later and the school needed to do this and do that and didn't, and you need to write that letter that, that locks it up tight, that, uh, that your kid needs this service or whatever else it might be. Then we have a bunch of sample letters in that book. Um, and, uh, so you can go right into that chapter about the letters or you have a meeting coming up and it's a triennial and reevaluations, and we have a whole chapter we have several chapters on, on meeting dynamics meeting strategies. And uh, the other thing that, uh, that we really stress is, uh, by the book is titled from emotions to advocacy as parents so often feel strong emotions on behalf of their kid. And yet that's what oftentimes closes the door because they let their emotions get the best of them in a meeting with other people. And if the parent feels like they are being talked down to and that the uh, person running the meeting is being antagonistic to their request, the parent will get start to get angry and may uh, even... Uh, go on the attack and that is a best way to close doors to services and ensure your kid does not get them. It has the opposite impact. So my parents, I, I drill them on this in, in my office when I'm meeting with clients that I represented, <clears throat> they learn how to present an image of Mrs. Manners that has merged with the personality of Peter Falk Columbo. Now, that was an old TV series called Columbo. And so many people don't know what, what it is now, but if you ever get a chance to see it, uh, Columbo had a, a way of uh, appearing dumb and stupid and asking that critical question that flushed everything out. So I tell my parents, you've got to have a personality that's a merged personality of Mrs. Manners, Peter Falk, Columbo with a touch of Mother Teresa. You always have that angelic smile about you. And when someone in a meeting is trying to make you feel bad about the position you're taking and talking down to you, you... Just make like you didn't realize that and you kind of have a smile and you act a little slow and you let it go over your head and you don't respond. And then the technique to avoid getting emotionally entangled into a battle of wills in a meeting, which serves you no good, is when you feel the tension starting to build and you're either listening to or you're responding back to the person that's running the meeting or the one that you feel antagonism with, you don't look at their eyes. You look at a spot on the wall about six inches off their eyes. That allows you to emotionally disengage from getting wrapped up into a battle. And then the other thing is you never put someone down in front of their peers. So if a person has misstated the law and you know that they've totally misstated it, you don't tell them they misstated it and tell them what the, what the law actually says because that also ensures that the doors will be closed. You don't ever do that. You you can ask a question. I'm so confused about this. In fact, I had my rights law, especially law book here with me and help me understand uh, what it means here uh, in this paragraph where it talks about my, the, the IEP team is to consider my child's educational needs as you turn and pass, that, pass the book over uh, <clears throat> to the person running the meeting. So there's Other techniques you have to use. And then the other thing is all of my parents had to read the book Getting to Yes, all about learning negotiation strategies. And then another book um, by Jerry Spence, How to Argue and Win Every Time. He's the best trial lawyer alive today. And it's not about arguing and winning. It's about telling a story using visual imagery and in a narrative style that causes a person with power to want to give you what you want, to want to rule in your favor, whether it's the judge, whether it's the person running the meeting, whatever else. And that's all about marketing and selling, telling your story with emotional imagery.
0: So you mentioned that really it's the first step for you to advise parents to get this information so that they can go into these meetings with that understanding and to have some strategies and techniques for working with the school.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: And then again, you know, finding support with decoding dyslexia and other parent organizations that are springing up in communities all over the country. Uh, so that's another support for parents, I would think.
1: Oh, all of my parents. I told my parents that they had to join three organizations related to their child's disability. So let's assume that the child had autism. Find a national group related to autism. Find out who they were. Join that one, then find another organization of a national uh, scope that's unrelated to their child's disability. So the kid has autism, join uh, one of the autism national organ- autism organizations. and then, for example, join the International Dyslexia Association. If he doesn't have dyslexia, has autism. Join the International Dyslexia Organization also. You only have to join it for about a year. And then, in many areas of the country, There are strong, powerful ad hoc advocacy groups that are not necessarily disability specific. Find out if there is one in your area and join that because that will many times include the parents who are battle seasoned, who've been around for quite a while and really know who to go to for, let's say, a psychological evaluation or educational, who not to go to, how best to deal with this school district versus how to deal with that school district who really know the ins and outs of the best way to get services and open doors without causing World War III. So I would tell my parents three organizations, two being national, one specific to their kids disability, the other not. By joining one that's not specific to their disability, they'll realize that the issues are so often same, same. The mechanics of getting the services will be the same. The services may be different. For example, a kid with dyslexia, you may want to be doing your best to secure a structured literacy or Gillingham program. Or a kid with autism, let's say an ABA uh, program. So the 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 nature of the remedial technique is quite different, but the mechanics of getting there, how you do it, what you've got to do, are pretty much same same. And and so by doing that, you you realize there's an awful lot of transfer of learning over from one disability to the other. So when you're reading articles about uh, how to get services for your kid with whatever it might be and it doesn't apply to your child, read it anyway and change the nature of the label and you'll be surprised at how many times it really is uh, specific and appropriate to you.
0: Mr. Wright, thank you so much for lending your expertise. This is a topic we'll be hearing a lot more about um, and this information will be really helpful for educators and parents. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. I have enjoyed it thoroughly. And thank you for joining us for this episode of PodCast. We've got some great episodes coming up, so we hope you'll come back. Thanks.